0: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Denmark faces a grim task, killing 17 million mink. It seems that a new variant of the coronavirus that the creatures can transmit back to humans has taken hold, the kind of mutation that could derail efforts towards a vaccine. And there are few more culturally potent musical genres than Korea's glossy K-pop. Mostly, it's for the young. Meanwhile, among an older crowd, the music of a bygone era is resurging, and its devotees are just as devoted as the K-pop crowd is. But first...
1: My fellow Americans. The people of this nation have spoken. They've delivered us a clear victory, a convincing victory.
0: Over the weekend, former Vice President Joe Biden secured enough Electoral College votes to become America's next president.
1: I pledge to be a president who seeks not to divide, but unify. Who doesn't see red states and blue states, only sees the United States.
0: He spoke after Kamala Harris, who said she stood on the shoulders of the women who came before her to become the first woman to be elected vice president.
2: But while I may be the first woman in this office, I will not be the last.
0: Only once in the past 40 years has an incumbent been denied a second term. And Mr. Trump insists he hasn't. He's yet to concede. On Saturday, at a press conference at the Four Seasons, total landscaping firm in Philadelphia, Mr. Trump's personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, responded to the news that cable networks had called the election.
3: Come on, don't be be ridiculous. Networks don't get to decide elections. Courts do.
0: Despite the legal challenges, there's no viable path for Mr. Trump to stay in office. And although Mr. Biden won more votes than any president in American history, his win isn't a complete triumph over Trumpism. Repairing America's wounds, both at home and abroad, won't be a matter of simply turning back the clock.
1: So my first reaction has been relief.
0: Zanny minton Beddows is the editor-in-chief of The Economist.
1: Relief that a few nail-biting days were over. Uh, relief that a historically divisive and dangerous presidency is coming to an end. And that a president with a contempt for norms, for institutions, and indeed the truth, has been rejected, if not repudiated, by the American people. So massively
0: one of relief. And that a period of reconciliation is coming.
1: I'm under no illusions. Um, Joe Biden is not a miracle cure for what ails America. He's a decent man. He's a uniter, not a divider. And I think we've already seen that this weekend when he quoted scripture. He very clearly reached out to those people who'd voted for Donald Trump.
3: The Bible tells us, to
1: everything there is a season, a time to build, a time to reap and a time to sow, and a time to heal. This is the time to heal in America. The whole rhetoric and tone of American politics, at least as signalled by the president-elect, has already changed. And we will see more of it as the transition goes on.
0: And what do you think President-elect Biden needs to do first? What's, what, what's first on the agenda?
1: Well, the very first thing on the agenda was setting the tone of what his presidency would be. And he's he's doing that and has done that, and I think very successfully so. The, the, the most obvious substantive things are to show how he would tackle the very serious challenges that face America. And right at the top of the list is the pandemic. I mean, this weekend, America hit 10 million cases. This is a extraordinarily difficult situation. We cannot repair the economy, restore our vitality, or relish life's most precious moments hugging our grandchildren, our children, our birthdays, weddings, graduations, all the moments that matter most to us until we get it under control. At the same time, I think he needs to signal internationally that this is going to be a very different kind of American leadership That's already happening, too, with signals that on day one, you know, America would re-enter the Paris Agreement, would not leave the World Health Organization, that it would be the America to some degree that the world knew, a multilateral America that cared about its allies. And he's sending those signals very strongly.
0: It seems clear, though, that that Donald Trump will will fight this to to the last. What do you think we should expect from the, the transition period?
1: I think you're right. I think it is clear that at the moment President Trump is determined to fight this, uh, it seems to me that it's already the case that it's somewhat of a fringe activity that people are not paying too, too much attention to. And the president will be you know, angry in the White House, he'll be calling for rallies, but no one seriously expects these court challenges to go anywhere.
0: But then when President-elect Biden becomes President Biden, he's likely to inherit a a divided Congress. How much do you think that'll influence how much he can get done over the next four years?
1: Well, if the Congress is indeed divided, which it does look as though it will be now barring um, a Democratic sweep in any runoffs in Georgia, it seems to me that the transformational potential of Joe Biden's presidency is perhaps somewhat constrained. But I'm actually not of the view that nothing will be possible. Because although Mitch McConnell, the uh, leader of the Senate, certainly had that kind of scorched earth policy towards President Obama, and really the Republicans prevented anything from happening, it's not obvious to me that that is in their interests right now when the country is facing the pandemic, when the economy desperately needs some more stimulus. So I think there will be some legislative action, but it will be more constrained and less dramatic than we might have expected with a democratic sweep.
0: And and what about the international view? How do you see uh, Mr. Biden's engagement abroad? How much do you think he can change the situation he's inheriting?
1: Well, I think there'll be a very clear difference in tone, in rhetoric, in reaching out to allies. It'll feel like a very different America, a much more familiar America to many American allies. But at the same time, I think that those around the world looking at the U.S. now would be wise not to expect some kind of restoration of the status quo ex ante. We're not going back to the America of the Obama era or indeed before that, because the world has changed. And so on very big and important areas, and I think probably the most important one is the relationship with China, there is now a bipartisan consensus in the US that China is a strategic competitor. So I don't expect a huge change there in the U.S.'s attitude towards China. But I think a Biden presidency will be much more focused on bringing other allies together in developing a strategic, coordinated approach to China.
0: And what about beyond China?
1: I think beyond that, you'll see a much greater focus from a Biden administration on values, on human rights, on standing up for democracy if there's one area beyond China that I think there'll be real focus and, and real potential, it is the area of climate change. This is central to Joe Biden's policy platform. He really cares about this. And there is, therefore, I think, a real potential to make serious progress there.
0: But this this new world contains Trumpism and, and stuff very much like it around the world. How much do you think Trumpism will remain and remain a force in American politics even after Trump himself is gone?
1: It absolutely does will contain Trumpism. And I think one important thing to do is to try and understand what we mean by Trumpism. And I think there's two big elements. One is, what is it that is associated with Trump himself? So the unpredictability, the narcissism, the contempt for the truth. And then there is the set of broader policy concerns that a a less sort of reckless individual could nonetheless champion. And that would be Concern about immigration, America first, skepticism of multilateralism, the anti-globalism. And I think that latter set of um, priorities, if you will, is very much what sort of epitomizes the modern Republican Party. So Reaganism has given way to Trumpism, if you will. And the question facing the Republican Party is how do they go forward? Can they extricate that from the personal elements of Donald Trump? I don't expect it to become a new Reagan party again. It is now a a very different kind of party, and it epitomizes a worldview that is there and that many, many millions of people share.
0: And for some time now, there had been such concern, in particular in challenging the election result itself, that, that Mr. Trump would break American democracy. I mean, what's your view on the degree to which American institutions have been tested here?
1: They have been tested, but I think they have proved remarkably resilient. And America has rejected this president and this nature of a presidency. And I think, therefore, American democracy is in better shape uh, than many people suggest. Now, it is an unbelievably polarised and divided country. Don't, don't get me wrong. I spent most of my adult life living in America... It had always been a trope that American politics was polarized. Everyone always said that. But in the last few years, it has become so much more polarized, so much more angry, so much more toxic. And a lot of that has had to do with the approach that Donald Trump has taken. So I think the big question is, can Joe Biden turn that around? And I think if he can, then it suggests to me that historians will look back and they will say that America was tested. It went on this extraordinary four-year journey into serious divisiveness and and danger, but it then came back. Let us be the nation that we know we can be, a nation united, a nation strengthened, a nation healed, the United States of America.
0: Zany, thank you very much for joining us.
1: My pleasure, Jason. Thank you.
0: For a lot more analysis like this, subscribe to The Economist, to find the best introductory offer wherever you are, just go to economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. with Good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, Award winning insights and business solutions so powerful you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com/slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, NA, copyright 2024. Last week, Meta Fredriksen, Denmark's prime minister, announced that a mutated version of the coronavirus had been found in mink, small weasel-like creatures farmed for their fur.
2: The
0: mink had caught the virus from humans, and the mutation made it possible to spread the virus back to them. This, she said, posed a risk, that vaccines may not work as they should. Viruses are in a constant fight to survive, to adapt, and to spread. SARS CoV 2 found its way from animals to humans and could do so again and again. If a new strain of the coronavirus were to become endemic, our weapons might be fighting the wrong one. Denmark's entire mink population of 17 million is now being
3: culled.
2: For Rechtemange really or for the Danish Mink
0: Miss Ms. Fredriksen said it was a rough day for many Danish families and for the Danish mink industry. Rougher still, it seems, for Denmark's government. Similar so called spillover events have already been found and addressed elsewhere.
3: This has been going on in Europe since April. The Dutch found coronavirus in their mink flocks and By June, they had culled the entire flock and the next month the Spanish did the same.
0: Natasha Loader is our health policy editor.
3: We don't really know how long this problem has been going on in Denmark. What we do know is that there is a particular strain of the mutated coronavirus that has crossed back into about 12 people and five mink farms. But this has been an ongoing problem from the sound of it for some time at least since June. And what we really need to get to the bottom of is why the Danish didn't cull their flocks earlier as the Spanish and the Dutch did.
0: So what is it that's happened exactly?
3: Well, what we're seeing is what's called a reverse spillover here. We know that this virus originated in bats somehow, somehow it got into humans, and now the humans have transmitted this to mink. Then mink can transmit it again back to humans. We've seen the workers at these farms picking up infections from the mink themselves. Obviously, it's bad for the animals. They get sick. They may die. But what the really huge concern here is that once the virus has transmitted into an agricultural population like that, they become a sort of reservoir for the virus and it makes the pandemic much harder to control.
0: Why, though? Why could this make the pandemic harder to control?
3: Well, not only... Is it a source of infection? You also get situations where mink-adapted coronaviruses intermingle with human-adapted coronaviruses and they create something new. A slightly mutated strain is worrying because the coronavirus that we know is SARS-CoV-2. We know what it looks like. We know that it does change a bit, but not much. We're developing vaccines against it. We're developing therapeutic antibodies against it. The risk is that something could happen that allows this virus to change in a big enough way that none of the things that we've been working and striving so hard on creating this year are going to work. And so that's the nightmare scenario is that you just get a new novel virus that is so different that we're back to square one.
0: So is there anything to indicate in the strain that we're now seeing in Denmark that does undermine those efforts, that kind of touches on the nightmare scenario that you described?
3: No, I don't think so. The honest answer is we just don't know. And I think there's a little laboratory work that's been done that suggests that antibodies we have don't latch onto this strain quite as well. But for now, I think we just have to operate under the assumption that nothing absolutely terrible has happened, but we do need to, with quite some urgency, figure out exactly what has happened. And the Danish are now culling the flock. They've announced lockdown, and I think there will be a decent investigation of this now. So I would urge listeners not to conclude that anything absolutely terrible has happened, but I think what's alarming is that what we have are all the ingredients for something terrible to happen. And it shouldn't have happened here.
0: So given those risks, that history, why didn't Denmark call its mink earlier?
3: Well, I think if you look at the size of the industry in Denmark, I suppose the hunch has to be that it was a politically difficult decision to take. And as a consequence, the Danish failed to act as quickly as they should have done. And I think that's obviously a mistake. This is Europe. We're supposed to take issues like this, this sort of biosecurity issue, very seriously. And these are well-regulated countries. Europe needs to be setting good standards, really. It's also worth noting that China and Poland have very large mink flocks. So we really need to know what's happening there.
0: And it stands to reason that it's not just mink we should be worried about. It It's just mink that we've happened to notice here.
3: Yes. I mean, we do know that the coronavirus can infect quite a few animals. We've seen it in dogs and cats. We've seen it in a tiger and then a lion. The animals probably that we need to worry about are the ones that are intensively farmed, like the mink, and that can get the coronavirus. And we need to be doing the surveillance everywhere, really, to keep checking the animals that are catching coronavirus, because once one gets it, then it's going to spread quite widely. We need to keep a lid on it, really.
0: Thanks for your time, Natasha.
3: Thank you so much, Jason.
0: This week on Babbage, our sister show on science and technology... Natasha will be tackling the growing concern of long COVID when an infection just doesn't resolve itself for weeks, months, or longer. Find Babbage wherever fine podcasts are sold and traded. When you think of Korean music, what probably comes to mind is this sort of thing. That's some K-pop, the global phenomenon known for its slick choreography and legions of adoring teenage fans. But BTS, the standard bearers for the genre, should beware. An older form of Korean popular music is making a comeback. truck
2: music is a mixture of traditional Korean melodies, Japanese and Western popular music, which is currently having a bit of a renaissance in South Korea.
0: Lena Shipper is The Economist's sole bureau chief.
2: The word trot comes from the English word foxtrot, but it's had various different names over the years because it's quite an old style of music. It emerged in the sort of early 20th century when the Korean peninsula was a Japanese colony.
0: What is trot, though? What does it sound like?
2: It's a very old form of music, right? It's obviously changed, like all popular music, has changed a lot in, in sort of form and sound throughout the decades. To the degree that today, you know, the ballads with those cheesy melodies and melodramatic lyrics, they're very popular with Drunken Revelers and Norobang, Korean singing rooms, essentially South Korean karaoke parlors. But people might not be able to tell you where that song came from or who first sung it. In the 20s, which is kind of the earliest time that we have any recordings of Trot that survive, it was very melodramatic, you know, very slow, very life and death kind of stuff. It became a bit more jaunty in the years after that. So if you listen to things from the 30s, they almost sound like the kinds of show tunes that you would have in Western black and white films. And then in the seventies, which is mainly the form that survives today actually in in karaoke palace, it, you can feel the influence of western music getting stronger and it's a bit more like the sort of cheesy pop ballad that you might be used to from other places as well. <laughs> And it's just something that's everywhere. It's the sort of thing that you'll hear at a motorway service station or being played in a shop or in a taxi. It's never really been cool, or if it ever was, it's been a very long time since people thought it was.
0: But it's cool now? I mean, what changed?
2: No, no, I wouldn't say it's cool now. Um, but what's happened is it's moved more to the front of popular culture in South Korea over the past couple of years, mainly thanks to television. There's a show that aired earlier this year called Mr. Trot. <laughs> And in that show, a mix of washed up and aspiring male crooners chosen from fifteen thousand applicants dress up in pastel suits and semi-unbuttoned silk shirts and they sing these old South Korean songs to compete for the title of Mr Trot. Sorry. And for some reason, this has turned a lot of them into stars. They've started to be recruited to front advertising campaigns, selling anything from coffee to gas boilers. Everybody knows their names now. So Trot has really started to have a bit of a renaissance. Among
0: everybody, this is kind of a national trend?
2: So there's a very specific demographic that mostly listens to it older women, starting in their 40s to over 80, who've always listened to this music. They used to be passive listeners, and now they've become a lot more active, taking their cues from K-pop fans.
0: In the sense that they are as fervent fans of Trot as BTS fans are of K-pop?
2: Yes, exactly. So the sort of fandom that you see with K-pop, where people are not just very ardent fans of the music, they're also very active, they're on social media, they're out voting for their favorite stars and polls and that kind of thing, This sort of thing has also started happening to Trot. And I met some fans uh, recently at a cinema in Seoul who had gone there to see Mr. Trot, the film, based on the television series. And they told me that in running their fan club, they've been inspired by devotees of K-pop in doing precisely that. You know, they get up in the middle of the night to stream their favourite songs or vote for their favourite star as singer of the month or whatever else there is. And they're just as fanatical
0: as teenage K-pop fans. So is there a risk that Trot could be as globally influential as K-pop has been?
2: I think it's too early to tell whether Trot is going to become a global phenomenon in the same way as K-pop. But you can certainly see the same enthusiasm and fanaticism among the fans. We might yet see middle-aged Korean women set a new global trend. Who knows?
0: Lena, thanks very much for your time and happy onward listening.
2: Thanks very much for having me, Jason.